Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and my guest today loves God's Word and loves words. So we're going to have a great study today with Dr. Rebecca Ree. You may know her as a regular guest on the show, and we usually always dig deep into God's Word when she comes on, and I look forward to it every time. Rebecca, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, well, this is going to be a great study Taking Matters Into Your Own Hands. I know that's the title of uh, our study today, and we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 16. That's the plan. That's the plan. So let me uh, let you go ahead and read this passage from Genesis 16. I think we're reading the first 13 chapter, uh, first 13 verses. Okay, so um, let, me, uh, let me just start off by saying um, we're going to look at specifically the perils of taking matters into our own hands. So we're not talking about benefits. We're talking about perils. And um, to do that, we're going to look at not one, but two narratives in Genesis that echo off of each other and give us the fuller picture. So it's also kind of not just a learning about a story, but it's a demonstration of how we read stories and interpret them, especially when it comes to the Hebrew Bible. So we can do it with other stories in the future. Um, So let's start with the first story, which deals with um, the matriarch. Oh, sure. Rebecca, before we start, I, I just have sure. to say, when I hear the expression, taking matters into your own hands, my brain defaults to uh, not a good turnout. <laughs> just so you know. So that was sort of the given that I thought that most people would probably assume that as well. But I'm glad you clarified that. Thank you. Yeah. Some people think it's a good thing when they feel like everybody around them isn't handling things right. And so then they want to take matters into their own hands. Yeah. So... Sometimes it's, it's, it depends on whether you think you need the correction or you're giving the correction. Exactly. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and read an abridged version of that story. You can just sit back and listen. Um, Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And he went into Hagar and saw, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong done be, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, and he said, to Hag- he said Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. 
Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. Amen to that. Amen to that. And I always appreciate, because I think you read directly from a Hebrew Bible, and I always appreciate uh, your proper pronunciation of names, because it always makes me think that, oh, I've been I've been pronouncing that one wrong, too, my whole life. Well, t- technically, it should have been Avram, not Abraham, because he hasn't had any children yet, and Sar- Sarai is Sarai, not Sarah, because she hasn't had any children yet. So I was fudging a little bit on Abram's name, but yeah. I try to get it right most times. I think I've always said Hagar my whole life, but Hagar. Yeah. Hagar, yeah. Okay, see, there you go. I learn something new every time you come on the show. <laughs> so um, here we have three main characters in the story revolving around a central problem. And I'm going to call the three characters, number one, the realist, number two, the pacifist, and number three, the vocalist. And each one of them has control issues of their own kind. So let's start with the realist. So for me, the realist is Sarai. The first words we ever hear out of her mouth are blunt and edgy. She makes no bones about what is going on with her and how she thinks it should be dealt with. And I think I've mentioned this to you before um, on your on your show before, but first words out of a Hebrew Bible character's mouth are often emblematic of who they are going to be in their life. So first words are always important. So these kind of tell you something very uh, blunt and edgy about Sarai, at least at this point in her life. Um, Sarai says in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Now, to my ears, that sounds like an indictment of God, which I could totally understand if I had suffered, you know, just a whole lifetime of barrenness in a culture that valued a woman's ability to have children. Um, So I could totally understand if, you know, she felt like she was indicting God. But for sure we know that it's an outright interpretation of her state vis-a-vis God. And it's a specific, and for her, it's a specific and permanent choice by God to withhold children for her, for her, for, from, from her, sorry. Um, it isn't a wait and see. It isn't a something random that happened. It is a permanent choice that was made by God to withhold children from her. Very personal. Mm-hmm. And in her mind, or perhaps better, in her heart, that withholding is something she should fight against tooth and nail, using whatever tools she has at hand. So if you can see my hands right now, I'm going to say this is her being realistic, and that's realistic in air quotes. This is Sarai's realism. So the tool that Sarai picks up is none other than an actual human being. Which, who is her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. And she says to Abram, please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall b- obtain children through her. That's how the English puts it. Now, I want to give you a very literal translation of this verse in the Hebrew, 
because it's going to be very important to our discussion. What Sarai literally says is, please go into my maid. Perhaps I will build through her. Wow. And that word, that word build in Hebrew is bana. And it's the same word that we find in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house. So she's like trying to build a household. It's literally the, the mindset that she has, and you can help, it helps you kind of picture where she is and what she's planning to do. So as she does this, Sarai is literally taking matters of life and death into her own hands and trying to determine the outcome. I mean, to me, this is serious business. And, and to, you know, to further her plan, she uses very polite language with Abram to do so. She says, please, twice to him, please do this, please do this, because she knows very well that Abram's cooperation is vital for her plan to succeed. So she's really like putting the pedal to the metal here. She's just trying to take every cover, every angle in this building program that she has. Here's another way that Sarai acts with like brutal realism. She turns on a dime when things don't go on her, go her way. Um, because in the beginning she says, I will build, this is my project. But when Hagar gets pregnant and looks down on her, Sarai turns on Abram and says, this is your fault. Oh, wow. Great. So, yeah. So Sarai goes from asking Abram's cooperation to demanding his involvement. And by extension, she's also demanding God's involvement in the situation because she says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. May the Lord judge between me and you. And it's interesting because a little more Hebrew here. The word for wrong, may the wrong done to me, there is Hamas. It's a very strong word. Hamas is the word that's used when God witnesses such evil upon the earth that he decides to cleanse it with a flood. Very emphatic, strong language she's using here. Wow, that is very strong language. Yes, yes. It's just utterly, utterly evil. That's what she's talking about. That's how... That's how acutely she's feeling this this uh, this situation right now. Wow, it seems a little, a little out of proportion, doesn't it? Well, I'm just telling you, this is we're, we're learning about who Sarai is yeah. and how she processes things. Okay. Um, so we we hear her use this word Hamas. So that Abram clearly absorbs the impact of Sarai's. Um, very sharp, realistic rhetoric, because he gives about as passive, and I would say as ominous, an answer as possible. He says in verse 6, your maid is in your power, do to her what is good in your sight. And again, here the Hebrew is saying, your maid is in your hand, do to her what is good in your eyes. And in my mind, those fateful words earn Abraham the title of pacifist, mm -hmm. meaning he will do anything to keep the peace. It sounds that way, yeah. Now, on the surface, it may seem that Abram is doing a good thing, right? Taking his hand off the steering wheel when Sarai brings in the religious talk about God judging between them. But if we probe a little bit more deeply, we can see that Passivity can sometimes be just another form 
of taking matters into your own hands. And I'm going to repeat that because it sounds counterintuitive. Passivity can be just another form of taking matters into your own hands. So even though Abram has just been told by God, if you read the chapter before this chapter, that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars, he hands the mother of his first in utero descendant into the hands of his irate wife for her to do what is fit in her eyes. Mm. So he's refusing to, to step up as the family leader and make choices concerning baby, mother, and wife. And that in itself is a choice. So just as Sarai was wandering into the realm of life and death decision-making with her baby building program, so Abram is entering the same territory by subjecting Hagar to whatever treatment Sarai deems fit. And we'll see later on, if you go into Genesis 20, that might include death because Sarai eventually drives Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert where they could potentially die. Okay. So that's how far he lets it go. Well, Rebecca, this is a good place to take a short break. Dr. Rebecca Ria is our guest. We are studying in Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to keep this uh, study up. We're talking about taking matters into your own hands today, and this is uh, usually ends up not ending up well. So we'll be right back in just a minute. Dr. Rebecca Rhea is my guest. We're studying, well, right now we're in Genesis 16, and we're talking about when you take matters into your own hands, not always the best thing to do. And Rebecca, so far, really some very, very interesting uh, points you've made and things that I probably would have never have seen because I don't read Hebrew. Well, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the, Makes all the hard work of learning that language worth it, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does, yeah. So thank you for that. You're welcome. All right, let's pick up um, again as we frame the story. And I just want to go back to verse 1 because um, when it says that, that uh, Sarai had an Egyptian slave woman, uh, that was more of a servant than a slave, correct? You know, I am not... Um, I couldn't give you a definitive answer. All I know is that when I've looked it up in lexicons, you know, in, in the Hebrew English, it says maidservant. Okay. So um, I'm guessing she's basically some something. It's, it is like true servitude. Okay. Yeah. All right. So where do we pick up? So we've talked about the realist, who is Sarai, yep. who sees things in kind of brutal terms and will do anything she thinks she needs to to get her goals. We see Abram, the pacifist, who will do anything to wriggle out of the situation and be, be a leader of the family in, in this case. And so now we're going to go to the third person, um, who I call the vocalist. Okay. And I'm going to ask the question of whether she is somehow, does she also have a control issue? Is she somehow also taking matters into her own hands? And I believe the answer to that question when it comes to Hagar, our vocalist, 
is two yeses and one no. So the first yes is that Hagar chooses badly when she holds Sarai in contempt. And interestingly, the storyteller doesn't tell us what form that contempt takes, but it must have been kind of like consistent, like maybe some kind of little microaggression that she kept doing all the time, or maybe she had words with her or something. But it was serious, and it was strong. And Sarai feels it acutely, just as she felt acutely offended by God for her barrenness. And so that's the first yes when I say she's taking matters into her own hands there. Second yes, Hagar chooses to flee from Sarai rather than endure any more torture from her. And again, the Hebrew proves very helpful here. It says in verse 6, do to her what is good in your eyes. That's what Abram says. So Sarai treated her harshly. What it literally says is, so Sarai humbled Hagar. So the Hebrew verb is anah, humbled. And the way that it's used here, that humbling means afflicting. There's several ways to humble a person in the Hebrew Bible, but this one definitely has this tone of affliction. So Sarai is afflicting Hagar in some seemingly unbearable way that we don't know about. So Hagar is showing contempt and running away. Those are her two yeses, her two ways of trying to take control of the situation. But, and I must say, I'm kind of sympathetic to her more than maybe the other two characters here, because she is coming from a disempowered place. She doesn't have a lot of choices to begin with. So, and, and also from an emotional standpoint, I think as human beings, and I don't think this is changes from the time that people we're living in the Bible to us now, when you have a place of woundedness or a place of suffering um, that's just been there for so long, when something comes along that remotely, you know, even starts to make it feel a tiny bit better, you just like glom onto that. You know what I mean? Like you can kind of just immediately go overboard with it because you've just been nursing this wound for so long that any little bit of comfort, you just grab onto it and, you know, go at it with gusto. And so that's why I think she went from being, you know, just a maidservant to all of a sudden holding her mistress in such, you know, contempt, because it was, it was finally giving her some sense of validation maybe as a, as a person. Um, But again, it is a way of taking matters into her own hands, but let's talk about the third way. There is one way she relinquishes control rather than taking it, when the Lord engages her in the wilderness. So when you read the Hebrew, four times the angel speaks to her with one question, speaks to her, and it's with one question, one commandment, and two prophecies. And, and the question is a little bit puzzling to me, because this short little story calls the special manger, uh, messenger angel of the Lord, Four times. It's just like a couple of verses, but it's the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. The the storyteller is really drumming it into our heads that this character is speaking for God. So when he asks Hagar, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm thinking, like, don't you already know all this information? You know, why are you asking this? Um, And my guess is that the angel isn't so much looking for information as trying to prompt 
um, a response from Hagar, giving her room to speak in maybe a way that her social status and other contexts never gave her. He's giving her a choice to have that voice that maybe she never had before. Mm-hmm. So Hagar's first words as a character are also very telling, and she holds nothing back. You know, verse 8 literally reads, from the face, not the presence, in the Hebrew, it's from the face of my mistress, Sarai, I am fleeing. And note that she doesn't tell the angel where she's going, which was the other half of his question. But I think that's because she doesn't particularly know. I think she just ran out and didn't necessarily have a plan. Um, I can't so believe anyone mi- would do that. Well, I think that the torture was bad enough that she did. Oh, I even, even pregnant. I know, but even I'm pregnant. Saying, I'm saying run, run out without a plan. That happens all the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> it's human nature. That's yeah. what makes these stories so wonderful. It's human nature. So the commandment that the angel gives in verse nine gets right to the point. You know, it's, when she, it's obvious like she's, she's a woman without a plan and she's in trouble. He says, to her, he says to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. And literally that says return to your mistress and humble yourself. And that humble word, again, is ana. It was the same word used to describe Sarai's affliction of her under her hands. So he's basically telling her, return to the exact same thing that you were enduring before. Same word. Wow. Um, kind of puzzling, right? Yeah, but, it is. Yeah. Um, return to what you just fleed from. Yes. And we're going to get into that and that, that whole dynamic in just a second. So for the sake of time, we're not going to look too closely at the two prophecies that follow with the angel, but they are remarkable in two respects. And first is, is that God promises to prosper Ishmael abundantly, which is exactly what he promises to Abram earlier. And second, he foretells what kind of person Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey. When's the last time you heard somebody called a wild donkey? Um, Someone, someone who's in conflict on every side. And if that were me hearing such a prophecy, I would be thinking, you know, gee, I'm really pleased with the the first promise, but I'm not quite sure what to do with that second promise. Mm -hmm. And that ambivalence is precisely why I call Hagar the vocalist, because the second she detects, that she's been conversing with God, she responds back to him, mixed bag of information or no. She calls God, you are a God who sees. And that is second person, I thou speech. Mm-hmm. That is prayer. Mm. All right, Rebecca, I think this is a time we need to take our break, but we're going to come back and continue. I, I love the way you've set up the characters with the realist, the pacifist, and the vocalist, this is really helping me put these characters in the in the story in place. So we'll come back with Dr. Rebecca Ree, and we will uh, also continue our study in Genesis. So if you're just joining us, that's where we are. We'll be right back. It's the 
We are studying a little Old Testament today with Dr. Rebecca Reed, who is a Hebrew scholar, and I always enjoy her teaching. We're in chapter 16 of Genesis, and you know the characters, Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, and she's done a really nice job of, of giving them each a little title to work off of, and uh, Sarai is the realist, and Abram is the pacifist, and Hagar is the vocalist. And I think if somebody just climbed in their car and would go, I want to hear more, maybe, Rebecca, you can summarize all of these. Realist who is taking matters into her own hands by deciding that she's going to start this baby building program, that she's going to have surrogate children. We have the pacifist who hands off the situation that he likely should have engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, when she gets upset, okay, well, you deal with it. And then we have the vocalist who is the most lowly uh, person in this lineup of characters, and she's the only one who prays. And so she is reaching out her hands in faith that God will turn her catastrophe for good because she does return Mm -hmm. um, to this difficult situation. So my question for us today is, how do we go for that third role and engage God through our affliction and return to our lives strengthened by him? So let's look at our second story, which is also a story about building. It's a famous story about building. I'm going to ask you, Bill, what, what, take a gander. Which, which story do you think that is? It's about building? Mm-hmm. A mm. famous story in Genesis about building. Um, let's see. <laughs> well, we've already covered Abram, so let me think from there. Go further, go further earlier in the book. Oh, uh, let's say Moses. Uh, okay. Well, Moses would be in Exodus, but I'm, um, that was a good choice because he does a lot of building of, he builds a nation. So that is an, a valid answer. Okay, good. But I want to go even further, um, further in, in back into Genesis. And I want to read you a text from Genesis 11. Okay. Um, so let me just, and I'm just going to read verses four through nine very quickly. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the sons of men had built. Mm -hmm. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not be able to understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. More familiar now? Ah, it's a little more familiar, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'd like a well, good hint. The reason why I want to look at this uh, story briefly is that the text features the same Hebrew word that bana that Sarah uses. And although it might seem like the focus of building in this story is an edifice, the focus is actually on the legacy of people. As with Sarai, the builders in this story seem like realists. 
And what they're thinking is if they don't do something drastic about population control, they're going to be scattered all over the earth and lose their advantage of collective strength. And again, you know, we're, Sarai was trying to build a legacy. These people are also trying to build a legacy and a name. Um, we don't see them consulting with God about their building program. They talk about their tower reaching heaven, mm-hmm. but that seems to be more a choice about their own glory rather than God's glory, at least to me when I read that. I would agree. I don't feel like they're doing this for the glory of God. And all these realists are thinking about is the harm that could come to them in an earthly sense, which is diminishment and obscurity as a people. They're not thinking about heavenly judgment. And they seem to forget that no one acts in a vacuum without God. And that's really the short and sweet point that I wanted to bring from the second text into our first, that when human beings who are made in the image of their creator start building things that involve human welfare, things get very tricky very fast. And what the stories of Genesis 16 and Genesis 11 tell us is that human building triggers two responses from God that we need to keep in mind at all times before we take matters into our own hands. Do you want to hear them? I do. Two, two, um, two things that happen with God when we take matters into our own hands. The first thing that human building triggers is divine scrutiny. And that means like close inspection from God, divine scrutiny. In both these stories, God makes personal visits to determine exactly what is going on. In Hagar's case, an angel of the Lord visits and asks her, where do you come from and where are you going? In the Tower of Babel story, God comes down and determines that the builder's project poses a risk to the proper order of things. Humans shouldn't be clumped together, reaching upward. The original commandment, if you remember from Genesis 1 and 2, was to be fruitful, multiply, and dot, 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 rule over all the earth. They're not exactly doing that Mm -hmm. here. So, and then the second thing that gets triggered when we start a building program is from, gets, specifically gets triggered from God, is course correction. So human building triggers course correction from God, which is often an exact reversal of what people are trying to escape. So he, Hagar was humbled, Anna, by Sarai, and must return and humble herself again, Anna, only this time with the assurance of God's nearness. Hmm. Not so great a scenario for the Bavel builders. Right. They, yeah, they say they do not want to be scattered. And the, the Hebrew verb there is futz. When God confuses their language, we hear that verb two more times. I mean, it's just like ringing like a bell through the story. The Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Futz, futz, futz. They don't want to be scattered, scattered, scattered. Um, the storyteller is really driving the point home that building projects that are apart from or even against the Lord land you right back where you started, which in this case was scattered. So 
for me, it's Hagar who emerges the heroine in both of these stories because she shows us what trust in God looks like. She hangs on to the revelation that God sees her and is paying attention to her. And that's what that name means, Ishmael. It means literally God, which is his name is El. El hears. Ishmael hears. God hears. That's what that name means. So she's really hanging on to that when she goes back to Sarai. So in terms of hanging on to things, I want to ask you and everyone in the eyes um, a couple of questions, which is if you're building anything that involves human welfare, so some undertaking at home, at work, at church, in your community, are you checking in with God first? Or are you just expecting him to rubber stamp his approval? Mm. Okay, that's a huge question, Rebecca. And there's oftentimes people with their great ambition to do great things, uh, make plans, and just pray that God will be in agreement with their their ambitions. Yep. Well, um, then I would suggest, you know, always return to the text always return to the text and reading stories like these make you realize you can't get away with cursory prayer. You can't get away with, you know, cursory. Oh, well, yeah. You know, cursory expectations of God's involvement with things. Cause he's deeply involved. I think I find it really fascinating that in both stories, he makes bodily personal incarnate visits through the angel of the Lord. And through, we don't know, understand what form exactly this divine uh, person makes, but he comes down It says, let us go down and see what they're doing. Right. So, so we, we never know what that is, do we? You know, I, I, read, a, um, I read up some of this when I was doing my PhD, and there, there are incarnations of God that are not quite well defined in the Old Testament that we don't quite understand. We just know that God is up close and personal. Mm-hmm. And we have to, and I, I personally believe when Jesus came to earth, that was a whole brand new thing. Yeah. I don't think he was paying personal visits before that point. Cause I think the incarnation was just an entirely new manifestation of God. Um, but he does make these, he does pay these personal visits. And yeah. so we have to realize whatever we decide to do has to stand up to a personal visit. And when, when it says in verse seven, come, let us go down. Yep. Uh, who's us? Who that seems to be somewhat, I've heard it called the royal we. Okay, I like that. <laughs> um, but God seems to have relationship with his, himself as Christians believe in the Holy Trinity. Yeah. But yes, now, in, uh, that's what I think is going the, on. In the New American Standard Bible that I'm looking at right now, the word us, us is uh, capitalized. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's driving home the point that this is a divine us. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Very, very interesting. Um, so, Rebecca Ree, when we start applying these principles, let's say, let's go to the Word, make sure that when we have an ambitious endeavor, that we want to build something that we're asking God for His guidance, His leading. How do we do this best? Um, so, I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Awesome. Um, so, that's the first question. Um, you know, are you checking in with God first? Okay. Second question, are you ready for him to come down and take a close look at what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> and third question, are you open to course correction? 
Okay. And the way I think that we go through our paces and ask these questions in a sincere way, you know, where our hearts are really open to whatever God might say without any preconceived notions of what he's going to say or do, um, is first, you know, searching the scriptures like we have in a really in-depth way. And often I find reading stories with each other, reading texts with each other, if you get a strong witness of something that's throughout the Bible, that particularly will, will say, yes, this seems to be something. This, this kind of action that I'm taking seems to be something that God regularly approves of. Um, I would definitely say we've, we've got to search the scriptures in a meaningful way and in a humble way, realizing we might hear something that we're not too happy about at first. Um, so that would be the first thing, searching the scriptures deeply and go to people who, who, when they read scripture, we respect what they say. Mm -hmm. Um, definitely prayer, maybe fasting in prayer. If it's really something very important, fasting in prayer is often a way of discernment, discerning. We're talking about the process of discernment basically here. That's a good word for it. Yeah. Um, and definitely Nobody acts in a vacuum. Like I was talking before about the the builders of Bavel thought that they were acting in a vacuum. We don't, you know, God works through people so often in our lives. We're the number one uh, vessel for God's activity on the earth. And so consulting wise friends who have relationships with God that we respect and trust, Consulting others and bringing them into the conversation is another way of humbling yourself before God and saying, I'm not just going to go out with guns blazing. I'm going to actually submit this idea or this, this calling that I feel and invite another person into my process of discernment because they might give me insights that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rebecca Rios, my guest. Rebecca, if you're going to invite people into this process, you have to ask yourself this first question that you brought up just minutes ago. Are you open to course correction? Yes. Because if you're not, you've got to stop right there. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. How often do we engage in these kinds of discussions with people who say, the Lord told me to do this and I'm doing it, and they don't really want to have any kind of input from other believers? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do what the Lord's told you to do. I'm all for that. However, don't you think there should be some uh, fellowship with other people that you trust and at least say, this is what I believe the Lord's leading me, but I'm also open to course correction. That's that's yes. humility to me. Yes. And, you know, the Hebrew Bible gives us examples of people who were spoken to directly by God and didn't have to like consult others. You know, Noah, in fact, was being laughed at by his neighbors and friends for what he was doing, but he still did it anyway because he was that sure when God had spoken to him, do this. And then, you know, people like Abraham who heard, go sacrifice your son. Well, he didn't go consulting anybody about that because he had heard directly from God. But those seems to be more the exception than the rule. Yeah, I would agree. So, um and now that we now that God has specifically manifested himself after Jesus as the body of Christ well the ear doesn't separate itself from the body and go running off to do something nor does the arm nor does the eye we have to like you know we've been given a paradigm of of consulting each other and doing things in concert with each other mm-hmm. 
And it's a form of protection. It, it's really bless, it really protects the blessing that God wants to enact um, behind the program, whatever it is you're under, undertaking. It really protects that blessing if you have others around you mm-hmm. and others helping you. I agree. We're going to take a little break. Dr. Rebecca Reed is my guest, and we are going to come back, and I've got some more questions. We'll uh, take a very short break. We'll be right back. Today's topic is taking matters into your own hands. Dr. Rebecca Rhea is my guest. We've been looking at passages from Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis 11. And let me just say, if you missed any of this, please go to the podcast, hear it from the beginning, because you're going to want to hear all of it. So Rebecca, during the break, I was just thinking about what I said about people following what the Lord is laying on their heart to do. And maybe we can just talk about this just a little bit because I want to hear your your take and your understanding when somebody comes to you and says, the Lord's telling me to do this, and something inside your spirit says, hmm, I'm not so sure that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say the first person, the first, sorry, the first course of action to take when someone does this with you, is that what you're asking me? What yes. do you do when someone comes to you? Exactly. Um, the first course of action is to say, you know, I'm not sure it could very well be true, but I will commit to pray for you and then set out a specific way you're going to do that. Let's meet, you know, via Zoom every day at noon to pray about this or let's whatever, or I'll put it in my quiet time, but then let's talk about it two days from now or something, but make it a tangible, concrete thing to say, I am going to commit to prayer with you. And then if there's someone else that you think you know, would be an especially good contributor to this discernment process, you say, would you consider also sharing this with X, that other person, and bring them into a commitment of prayer with this for you? So there should be a sense of process about it. Do you know what I mean? God doesn't just come down and push a button that's on our forehead, and we, we like robots, just, you know, start doing something. You know, human agency is always really important. God chooses specific people because they are who they are, and he uses them exactly as they are to do what he wants them to do. And only he knows how they weave the fabric, you know, how every little thread gets woven into the fabric. Um, but again, I would, I would definitely start with um, making a formal commitment to pray with that person about and make it a process. Mm-hmm. Um, about what they they think they should be doing. Mm-hmm. You've certainly seen this in ministry. You've also seen this in relational things where, you know, God told me to marry this person, and it's you know crystal clear. And but I'm not open to having any conversations. And I thought, yeah, oh, oh okay. Well, I'll, I'll I'll pray for you. And this, <laughs> this, this clear vision they had uh, produced a marriage that lasted two years. Yeah, I know. And I've, you know, I've had people, I've, I've had one, one couple I could think of actually say that to me. Luckily, theirs turned out. But um, uh, um, it, it's very difficult when people play the God card, isn't it? I, I, it is for me. And maybe that's just a problem I have. But 
Well, can I give you a little, another little Hebrew pearl sure. that might be able to help with that? Um, in the Hebrew Bible, there are two verbs. The one I taught you for build, which is bana, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's another verb called bara. It's an R. So bana versus bara. Bara is a verb that means create. It's the first verb in Genesis. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the bara verb. That verb is exclusive to God. So whenever you see that verb in the Hebrew Bible, it is something that God and only God can do or is doing or has done. We don't have that in English. Okay. We just use the word create for everybody. But I think Hebrew makes the distinction because God's building is always perfect. Our building is, tr- is always tricky business, even when we're doing it in imitation of him, uh-huh. because we are imitating him. We're builders, too. But we have to acknowledge that we live in a fallen world, that we can be way off about things sometimes, even though our intentions might be really good intentions. But just even linguistically to say, you know, the, the Bible actually in the very beginning, in the very, you know, as soon as the world came to be, makes this distinction between God's perfect activity and our often imperfect activity. So we all, you know, none of us escape that litmus test of having to um, engage the process of discernment when we want to build something. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So when you look at the characteristics of Sarai and, and you said, okay, she's going to be the, the realist and Abram the pacifist and Agar, the vocalist. I'm just going back to this Genesis 16. Do you see yourself uh, gravitating towards one role in your own life? I think I'm, I think I've been all of them. <laughs> I, and I that think that's why I saw them. I, that's why I saw the three roles is because I've inhabited the three roles. So definitely. Yeah. Do you have a tendency to lean more towards one of the three? I would say for me, I'm kind of a control freak. Okay. Um, and I have a child, a special needs child with autism. So for me, it's about constantly trying to um, look ahead and see what contingencies might happen. Like when we go into a social situation, when we go into a novel situation, like, oh, I'm taking you on your first plane ride. What are the disasters that could happen there? Or, you know, oh, we're going to the store together. And now you tend to run away from me and I might lose you in the store. Mm-hmm. Like situations like that, people with um, special needs kids are always having to plan ahead and try to take control and plan for any contingencies that might happen. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, I'm sympathetic to people who sometimes like feel like they need to be very realistic. Like, well, I can't just waltz into a situation and not have any, any plan in my back pocket, you know? Yeah. Rebecca, you must be mostly exhausted most of the time because not only (laughs) you have, you know, a special needs child, but the, the way in which you have to project what is going to be your next five chess moves if you go into a store or take your first plane ride? I mean, this that's it's it's a lot of uh, thinking in advance. Yes. Well, I'll tell you, just yesterday he woke up and he was crying and having a meltdown and I, I was barely awake myself. Well, he had lost a little piece off of a toy and for I, we couldn't find it. And he was inconsolable. And he just, and so I found another piece that was similar to the piece, but no, in his mind and with autistic children, often it has to be the exact, they see, they see differences where we don't. Yeah. 
So he was just having a total meltdown. And it wasn't until I went on good old eBay on my you know phone, found the toy for less than seven bucks, <laughs> <laughs> showed it to him, said, do you want mommy to buy you this? Yes. Okay. And I hit that, printed out the receipt and gave it to him. And all of a sudden we're happy as a clam because we know the situation will be fixed. Yeah. He mm. understands online buying. He learned that one principle. He can't read very well, but he knows what online <laughs> buying is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I'm telling you, like these kinds of situations crop up all the time. And for all of us, not just special needs parents. No, so true. I think one of the things I'm really walking out with a... Uh, this teaching today is, are you open to course correction? That is, yes. That's really stuck with me today. Well, and it, it really goes back to the point of, how are you viewing God? When I say course correction, do you view, are you, thought, you thinking of a, like a loving God coming alongside you, putting his arm around you and whispering in your ear, you know, honey, that's not the best way. Let me show you. Uh, no, or I'm are not. you imagining a God with a thunderbolt who's ready to like just really hammer you? Yeah. If you don't get it right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, part two. So it, Yeah. <laughs> it's really important to like go to the parts of the Bible where, that talk about his character and his gen- genuineness and his long suffering with yeah. us, that he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Yeah. Rebecca, thanks so much for doing the show. Always great to have you on. Oh, I always enjoy myself too. Thanks so, so much. Thank, thank you. you. My guest has been Dr. Rebecca Reed. You can go learn about her at RebeccaRee.net. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.